All right, welcome to Dr. Chris, the Surgery Guy, the show where we talk about innovations in general surgery and things that, well, frankly, interest me. I'm very excited today to have Dr. Brian Harkins on the show. He is a board-certified surgeon out of general surgeon out of Tomball, Texas. He is the medical director of robotics for the HCA Gulf Coast Division, and again, works out of Tomball, Texas. So with that, Dr. Harkins, welcome to the show. I appreciate you being here, and uh, say hello to everyone. Thank you, Chris. I'm glad to be with you here, and hello to everyone. Yeah. Uh, at this point, as we grow the audience, it might just be hello to you and you, but uh, we'll get bigger, and these will uh, be archived so people can come back and listen. Um, kind of going through, I looked at your website a little bit earlier today. You had uh, kind of a, a little bit longer history than mine, although not much. Um, you went to LSU, I think I saw, for medical school? I did. I actually uh, started at the University of North Dakota when I was in the military. Uh, did a couple of years there, then finished up at LSU in Baton Rouge uh, for undergraduate. Okay. Uh, from got accepted to uh, medical school at LSU in New Orleans. Awesome. Okay. And then did you go straight there to the military from from that, or did you go? Uh, did you have brief? Or? I did. I actually enlisted it when I was 18, right out of high school, and I had eight years as an enlisted service member, and I was doing uh, night school and doing what I could to get my uh, undergraduate started. Um, then when I got accepted to medical school, I did the first year on my own, but I applied for the uh, health profession scholarship and was accepted and, uh, and did the last three years of medical school on scholarship, mm-hmm. which meant I finished, I had to go in and do my residency through the military. So I'd, I'd, I was eight years Air Force initially, and then I went into the Army on scholarship and did a um, uh, my training at Eisenhower Army Medical Center in Augusta, Georgia. Okay, okay. And so then, and you served in the military then just for the commitment, or did you serve longer? Uh, I spent three years of uh, additional payback time, uh, which was at Fort McClellan in Alabama, Anniston, Alabama. Okay. Um, uh, uh, three more years there. So a total of eight years, Air Force, eight years Army, and then I got out at that point. Nice. Yeah, I almost did that so many times. Just that being a resident, being sort of in that, like, ugh, how am I going to get through all this? And, uh, yeah, I came close very uh, a lot. And then in the end, I just I didn't quite do it. Um, but hats off to you, and thank you for your service. Um, so uh, Dr. Harkins, I have him on the show because he and I share a, a huge interest in robotic surgery. And uh, for me, uh, telling my story just briefly because we haven't shared it on the show yet, I, let's see, this would have been 2000. Nine, uh, 2009, yeah, maybe 2008 even. And the one of a couple of my partners at the time were like, "Hey, we should get trained in robotics." And my initial response was, "Why? Why on earth would I want to do that? I'm really good laparoscopically. I can do a gallbladder very smoothly, very efficiently, very safely. Patients do extremely well. I can do ap- appendectomies really well. And at the time, I did a fair number of." Uh, anti-reflux type surgeries as well, laparoscopically, and I thought I was doing a great job at them. And in the end, we had four partners at that time. I was the last one to get trained because I was the naysayer. I really was. I was literally the guy going, I just don't see it. I, I don't see it. Y'all go ahead, you know, whenever. And I was actually the junior partner too at the time. And I was just kind of like, you know, y'all go do your training. I'm, I'll sit back. I'll cover while y'all are going getting trained because a couple guys went at the same time. And then eventually... It got to be my time. And I sat down the first time, the first time on the console when the, in the lab, and I went, oh, I get it. Immediately, just sitting down for the console. And it was, it was an automatic switch. And just all the stuff that we were able to do. And I came back from that 
and I really haven't looked back since. And it's just kind of funny how anti-robot I was and now how, how pro-robot I was. Did you have a similar experience or were you always kind of thinking, hey, let's do something innovative? No, we, uh, I think we share the same experience as many of our colleagues who have gone down this pathway. Uh, it's, a, it's the norm uh, for us to be naysayers, if you will, to be critical of new technologies. And it takes something along that, that training pathway, exposure to a person or to a circumstance or maybe even to outcomes with colleagues or our own uh, that, that gives us the, uh, the light bulb moment that you're talking about where you realize, okay, this platform actually does have benefit and it could enhance my abilities in my practice. I, I think that's the, the norm. I experienced the same thing uh, with my training actually. Uh, and I actually got to go through this twice, if you will. Uh, okay. I, I, my time ever uh, that that happened was uh, in my training at Eisenhower was uh, 89 through 94. And in 1990, I got to see new technology and it was um, cool stuff. It was, uh, I thought it was the neatest thing ever uh, that I had, I had had experience watching patients have open gallbladders and they were, they were introducing in 1990, this new thing called laparoscopic cholecystectomy to us. Yeah. And as residents, we thought it was great. My chief of surgery said it was the stupidest thing he'd ever seen. We'd screwed up a good operation, and he didn't want anything to do with that Nintendo surgery, as he dubbed it. You know, that's uh, funny. My my uh, residency director said the exact same thing. Now, he was telling it to me in past tense because I trained from, uh, let's see, I finished general surgery training in 1999. I'm, I'm sorry. No, I finished med school in 99. So, and, so, yeah, I'm a little bit ahead of you or behind you there. But he told me the story of like, you know, why would we screw up this perfectly great operation? And at that point, for those listening that might be a little younger, they were doing this mini lap because my dad had one in 1987. So literally two years before they did the first one in France. And they're doing this little mini lap thing. And uh, I can't even imagine trying to do that. But anyway, they were, those patients were doing well. And they were doing like one or two nights in the hospital instead of like four to seven. Uh, and that was definitely an improvement. But then the laparoscopic, just like you're saying. Yeah. Well, yeah, when we when we got to do it, we did the lap. We were doing some of the mini lab, but not everyone got a mini lab. And, and you know, yeah. a lot of times mini lab turned into a regular uh, open cholecystectomy. Um, and, and so, yeah, so we got that exposure early on with laparoscopy and, and I, I fell in love with it during my training. And so that was my first time to realize what it was like uh, to see a new technology. And that what happened after that was, was also very enlightening for me as I went out into practice to start practicing laparoscopically in the mid nineties. And then as I jump ahead to, if you will, to the second time when I saw the new technology was in the uh, mid two thousands, after having gone through the laparoscopic early days, uh, I was pretty ingrained, just like you were talking about. I was pretty ingrained with my laparoscopic, uh, patterns. I, I, that was what I believe was the best way of me doing cases. I, I was good at it. I was had a reputation for it. I'd built my practice around it. Mm -hmm. So I really wasn't interested when the, the robotic rep started talking to me about how robotics could enhance my practice and my patient outcomes. I didn't, I didn't believe it, number one. Uh, um, and it wasn't until I had a, that, that uh, uh, kind of eye-opening moment for me when I had a CEO who came uh, to the hospital new. Uh, this was in 2014, actually, and he came to the hospital and he uh, was a big fan of robotics. He had had a successful program at his previous institution uh, based mostly on GYN and urology, mm -hmm. the way it started. Oh, yeah. Uh, but he came came to us and uh, said, you know what, um, I, I want to build a program here, but I really think that 
general surgery needs to be involved. And he came, he asked me, he said, you know, you do the most cases at our facility. Would you be interested? And I, I told him all my reservations and why I didn't think it was necessary. And, you know, and I said a lot of stuff back then that I really didn't know for real, like it costs too much. It takes too long. It's tech for the sake of tech. All those kinds of things came out of my mouth. And I had no knowledge of that individually. I just heard other people say it. So it was a, com a good place to stay from a comfort zone and, and to parrot those phrases to, to keep people away from me on that whole robotic thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but he showed me some data and, and that moved me down the path uh, to at least be interested in, in working with him and trying to, you know, to, to do that. And, and then I got into that pathway of, of, uh, of a, a training. And when I got into the pathway, I did like you did, I sat down at the console and I actually did a cholecystectomy on a pig and it was super slick and easy. And the detail, the vision, the articulating instruments, there was just so much there mm -hmm. that I went, I think I've been missing the boat. I think I, I have not really given this robotic thing a fair shake. And that's when the moment started flipping for me that this was for me laparoscopy all over again. And I don't mean that in the way I was doing the surgery. I'm talking about in the way that the, the surgical community uh, was accepting this new technology. We were doing the same things that had uh, happened back in the early lap days where we, we were skeptical. There's a bunch of naysayers. There's a, there's a proving grounds that has to be gone through. The only difference was that somewhere along the way, I had turned into the old guy. All that stuff the old guys used to tell me yeah, in the yeah. early days saying about the robotic program so i had to fix that and i, and it, I set down that path uh, way working with my ceo uh, to try and become um, more understanding of what that platform meant and taking it from there yeah the old guy part of it and that's the as as we move into this I'm, i remember uh i watched the keynote somewhere along the way and it had to be it was steve jobs and uh bill gates and they looked around they were having some meeting together and they turned out they weren't all that big enemies but they were looking at each other and like you realize we're the old guys now uh, and, and that I have that moment like all the time. We recently just hired a new partner, uh, and she's quite a bit younger than uh, my partner and I, who are roughly the same age. And uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. There's, there's a different philosophy being younger, and there's a different uh, energy. And uh, yeah, I find myself being the old guy, and that uh, sometimes I'm really great with it, and sometimes I gotta gotta stop myself. But with robotics, uh, I'm actually still probably the most aggressive in my practice. Um, the uh, it's interesting you talk about sort of the uh, you know I think you used the word when we were talking uh, before the show just a little bit of dogma and there are things that we do in general surgery the whole history of general surgery that have always been dogma I mean there's the history of you know colostomy in the setting of perforation is required and really for the longest time that's was just dogma there really wasn't ever data behind that uh, going from a military background, you may know this history, but at one point there was a, you would be court-martialed if you tried to repair a colon and didn't, uh, uh, didn't do a colostomy. And that's uh, sort of like literally the Korean War and Vietnam era, era surgeons that had to deal with that. And that was, that was my program director. That's what he did. Um, so, yeah, we, we do have to be careful about things that are dogmatic and um, going forward with the new technology. So, so take me back then. So you, you started with doing, I'm assuming gallbladders, or did you have another thing that you started with? Well, uh, if I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to back up even further. And again, okay. I think there's a lot to be said about this, this whole laparoscopic robotic analogy. And so okay. I started with yeah. laparoscopically. 
And that was a great case to start with uh, because it was profound, the difference in the outcomes. Um, Two seconds. I think you did cut out. You started with what again? Sorry. I said I started with laparoscopy with gallbladders. Okay, sure. And and it was truly profound uh, because the outcomes were just unbelievable difference. Uh, Patients did so much better, even though we still kept them a day or two in the hospital in the beginning because there's no way we we could go from four or five days down to to same-day surgery right away. That would have been – you know, heresy. Uh, so we kept them for a couple of days and eventually we got to the point where we realized this is an outpatient procedure now. Mm-hmm. And so in the beginning, I did start with gallbladders. I started doing a whole lot of other stuff and you would think that it was just all roses from there once you saw, uh, started seeing the outcomes. But when I landed at my first uh, um, installation after the military, they were a little more accepted, but I got out of the military and I came to Tomball, Texas. Uh, I came down here to be an MIS surgeon. And the, the whole thing down here that shocked me was when I got here, they were still doing a large number of their uh, gallbladders using open technique. Now, they had laparoscopy, but the old guys that were here were doing predominantly open gallbladders. That was their comfort zone. What year was this? This was in 1997. Really? So uh, so several years after Sages had already claimed uh, Lapcoli as the new gold standard, uh, certain areas that had no pressure from outside uh, had limited uh, uh, competitive pressures, and if there wasn't anybody in the area, then the circle of influence in this area was pretty limited. So they didn't re- they didn't have to change if they didn't want to. Nobody was forcing them to do that. Sure. Well, the hospital wrecked the problem. They saw these these patients who they would normally been getting. They saw their gallbladder numbers dropping off. For those uh, for those that don't know and don't know the, the geography of Texas, Tomball is. I would call it sort of a rural suburb of Houston. Certainly, ninety-seven, it definitely was that. It's probably a lot more connected now. But in nineteen ninety-seven, you still had to drive a little bit with a gap from Houston to get into Tomball, and so yeah, you had sort of a bedroom community, probably a local community type hospital, and maybe not as pressure from even the city just because it was too far of a drive at that point. So is that fair? Absolutely, and. Okay. and, and, and- we had a little over 100 beds, four-story building, uh, 10 ORs. Um, we were about a 45-minute, maybe hour drive to downtown Houston to the medical center. Uh, closer places before that, but to get to the medical center where the laparoscopy was, was exploding uh, took about an hour. And yes, there were gaps. Uh, those gaps are gone. Uh, it's continuity from, from Tomball all the way to downtown now. It takes a little bit longer now, even though you have some high-rise, the traffic is built up. Sure. And now our over 400 beds at a, as a 10-story building with 13 ORs. We haven't added uh, quite a few enough ORs yet. Uh, but yeah, that whole time frame with when I got here, uh, back in that 100-bed uh, uh, facility, the surprise to me when I got here was laparoscopy wasn't really penetrated, which is, again, one of the reasons they brought a young MIS guy in. But also um, that the dogmatic approach, I was hearing all those negativity things about laparoscopy from these guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and more importantly, though, the hospital kind of felt the same way. They wanted to bring someone, but they really didn't want to uh, invest in it. They just wanted me to come and start using it. And what I mean by that is at the hospital, they had one tower <laughs> wow. and they only had one team that knew how to use that tower. And they went home at three o'clock. So, so wow, five, that, that sounds familiar, huh? Okay. At five o'clock in the afternoon, I literally had to do an open gallbladder because I had no laparoscopy support. Right. So torture as a young guy, but very educational because jump ahead to <clears throat> to that 2014 time frame when I I come back from my training. Well, well, I get before, it. before we jump to a more modern time, how long did it take to get 24/7 laparoscopy? 
Yeah, so it was well over a year before they got uh, – we went from one to three towers. It took about six months before that happened and well over a year before I got to do after-hours laparoscopy at okay. Tomball, Texas. Okay. And, and that, that was uh, mostly because I was the young guy and I had so much pushback from not only the, the older guys that were doing cases but also from the staff. Right. The staff – the the uh, in a lot of ways especially in smaller places the mentality of the surgeons and the dominant surgeons at that time at that facility talked poorly about laparoscopy and so the staff had that same uh, perception yeah well a little bit of a negative attitude absolutely well some of those had 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 some lap coli patients family members and one of them actually drove down to get it that helped a lot and so and the administration started recognizing that okay some of the stuff that i was able to do during the day was knocking it through you know through the off, uh, out of the park in terms of relative length of stay numbers and complication numbers compared to those open coles that were still being done as well right. by the other guy right and then i think some of the other thing that was maybe going on maybe not uh, you being sort of MIS and MIS, he said that a couple of times, minimally invasive surgery, um, just for the, the, the lay people and the patients that might be listening. But in terms of, um, the time, any new technology, there is a time investment and initially it is going to be slower. And, you know, when we start first started doing the, the first laparoscopic gallbladders in 89 in France and then 1990 in the United States, basically those things were taking three hours, maybe even four but frankly, by 1997, people that were experiencing it, it was an hour or less. And so I think there was this perception that new technology, it was going to be so much slower. And so I think there was a lot of reason and kind of a little, little bit of foreshadowing here that if it's going to take longer, we really don't want that stuff being done at night to be punitive to the staff. So some of that you can sort of kind of understand. So it's difficult to get the investment uh, from, from a hospital, from staff. Um, and particularly in your case, where there's some negativity about the technology. So interesting. So I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I cut you off a little bit just to. That's absolutely right. I couldn't agree more with what you just said. And in fact, that was the whole point that, you know, this this robotic time frame that I embarked upon in 2014 was a was a do over for me. And it was really that understanding how that technology uh, transformation occurred in those mid 90s uh, to late 90s uh, at Tomball really helped me drive it again. So I go, I went through my training and I, and while I was doing my training, I realized there's something to this. Now, when I came back to Tomball to start, I took a different approach. I didn't decide to do hernia, then gallbladder, then uh, move up from there. I decided to go all in. And now it's, I don't necessarily um you know being on that cutting edge there's a lot of blood because it is the cutting edge and you you end up uh, having heartaches with that not outcome wise i maintain great outcomes but time that it takes and the, the, the you know the the uh, dragging the staff and the, the system into that new location like like you're doing that can be a challenge but we did it we i decided all in was my approach i and that did, meant different than what it means today I would, did not do all the same cases back then that I now do. That There has been a growth, if you will, as my comfort level has grown. Sure. But all in was sure. ventral hernias, gallbladders, inguinal hernias, even colons. I think somewhere in my first 40 cases or so, I, I had a spleen I threw in there. And I was willing to try anything that I would was doing laparoscopically. I just said, okay, I could, should be able to use this MIS platform, which has more capability to do it that way instead. Mm -hmm. And that's really what all in meant to me in the beginning. I didn't see this whole open to MIS migration that really has been the driving force behind the success of robotics. 
So I, I took off. I did, uh, I think I did two gallbladders or two hernias and a gallbladder the first day. And the second day I did two or three more. And since that time, since tw- September of 2014, I haven't done 50 laparoscopic cases. I've done everything robotic. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's really great. Yeah. I think uh, you sort of alluded to something different there is that as we go through it, you know, there was initially that thing of like, okay, everything that I can do laparoscopic, I can certainly do robotically. And I think that is 100% accurate. I can't think of a case where laparoscopic has an advantage over robotic. There might be one, but I can't think of one. Um, I agree. With you. And then in terms of, I think the big next step, I think is a robotic surgeon is moving from I'm a robotic surgeon to I'm a robotic surgeon, like maybe innovator or kind of that next step that really that true expert level is when you take things that you can't even do laparoscopically. And when you're looking at things that are done in an open manner that you can do robotically, that's where you really get going. For me, a great example is small bowel obstruction. You can do laparoscopic small bowel obstruction, but my experience always has been the only ones that I really was able to do laparoscopically are the ones that were those single band adhesions where you really didn't have to manipulate the bowel very much. My experience has always been that the bowel is so friable, the laparoscopic technique, I did not find that it was gentle enough on the bowel, and so I ended up opening more often than not. So yeah, you can do it laparoscopically, but not always. Versus now in 2020, I literally did a case, was it last week? Yeah, last week, who had an early bowel obstruction after a right colon uh, for cancer. And sure enough, I got in there and the person had done the, uh, the colon surgery, they had left behind kind of a ball of adhesions from a prior surgery that weren't necessarily prominent or whatever, or didn't need to be done just for the, for the colon surgery. And sure enough, I mean, I did a complete lysis of adhesions from the ligament atrites all the way down to the terminal ileum, taking it apart just as you would open. And that, at least in my hands, pretty much impossible laparoscopically. And so when you take stuff like that, and now you can have a patient that, you know, he's still got a bit of an ileus because of the bowel manipulation, but he went home in three days versus what usually for that extensive lysis of adhesions is seven days. So I think yeah. that that is the next step. But going back to the what you know, I like to call it acute care general or acute care robotic surgery. And with our institutions, uh, my partner and I used to have started pushing this, and it took us two years. It took us two years to get twenty four seven robotics done, um, and we just got it done literally in the last two months. Um, and it's it's been great. Uh, and there were some steps along the way. There was, you know, if if it was me and you know I could I could control them just a little bit. I could do some stuff occasionally, but it really depended on who was on call. And you know they there was always. There was always reasonable answers. I wouldn't want to use it excuses, but they, they had trouble ensuring that they could get staff to cover. And it's really just like what you're saying with the laparoscopic. You know, we only have the one robot at one hospital. At the other hospital I work at, we have two. And having just one platform, they haven't had the need to have everyone that takes call really do that. So they only had like three or four teams that were trained on the robot. So if they didn't happen to be on call then you just couldn't do it. And furthermore, their perception, not so much with the negative because it was we're kind of more the dominant group anyway, so they were pretty excited about the technique, it's just that those same people couldn't take call every other day. Or, you know, it's like, oh, well, it is still going to be longer, so we really, on the weekend, we want to get through these cases. We don't want to hold up the ortho guys uh, at all, uh, heaven forbid. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, so there was a little bit of... Uh, I wouldn't use the word pushback, but more reticence. And it, it, did, it took us two years to finally get it. And now that we're there, now we're doing, 
you know, perforations, lapis, uh, robotically rather. We're doing, uh, you know, obviously gallbladders. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. I've even, and what you talk about, it just keeps coming. Laparoscopic appendectomy, right? This is a surgery for patients in really, really good hands with a simple procedure can literally be about a 10 minute operation, okay? And that's not rushing, that's not racing, that's just, you lift the appendix up, you make a little hole, you staple it, you staple its blood supply. It just doesn't take very long. And my reticence is that robotic, and I've done a lot of robotic cases, that's still, even in my hands, it's still about 20, 25 minutes to do an appendectomy robotically. But I've made the conversion. I've stopped doing laparoscopic appendectomy even because number one, it turns out it's actually less expensive because I'm not using staplers and I'm actually sewing the appendix. I'm actually doing more of an old fashioned open appendectomy technique with the robot. So instead I'm just using one suture, which is way cheaper than two staple loads, uh, laparoscopic staple loads as well. And so it actually is a little bit cheaper to use the robot. And, and I found Straightforward, simple appendectomy, probably not a whole lot of difference. But a more complicated retrocecal appendix, one of those ones that's kind of stuck to the sidewall, much easier robotically, just like gallbladder. Hard gallbladders are easier to do robotically. And so, yeah, I've stopped doing them. I've, I do appendectomies now. I've wanted, I'm curious, do you do your appendectomies robotically or do you kind of still do lab? Oh, no, I, I definitely do them robotic. And I, re, and I would reiterate your, your cost uh, um, uh, dynamics there. We, we've proven that we, uh, and I'm talking down to the to two gloves to robotically and two gowns robotically because I have to scrub back in to close. We've counted every single thing we oh, use. Oh, man, you need a PA. You need a PA. <laughs> <laughs> I have one, but I don't call her in after hours. So, uh, so yeah, so we, we um, I, it's just me and the tech, and we, uh, I do them, and I'm definitely, I'm about $115 at my institution with our numbers, about $115 cheaper than yep. the average microscopic case, and it's the same thing. I use, I use uh, actually either I sew it or sometimes use just endo loops uh, to tie off the sure. base of the appendix. Uh, we'll cut a couple of endo loops, drop them in. And I, that way I don't open the mega suture cut. I just open the scissors and I do the dissection and then slide the endo loops down and use the back of the scissors to tighten it up, cut the appendix off, use monopolar energy or maybe a clip on the, uh, the vessel and then into a, a bag and out. And so we save one instrument by doing that. And it's the same time. It's around 20, 25 minutes skin to skin on most of them. Occasionally yep. we've, we've done it in 15. And then oh, it's, uh, it's a, but it's, it's that, that's with me and the tech and I have to have a tech that really knows what they're doing. And when, when they do that, um, and when I have that skilled person there, then we can go faster. And if I may jump back for that whole idea of having that skilled tech there, when we uh, started this back in 2014, we, we, uh, called on that previous laparoscopic transition knowledge to make this happen because as soon as i started doing a bunch of cases and going all in you start we did 150 cases on one system our very first quarter and that's a lot of cases it on is. one system yeah and especially going from nothing we we had done 38 cases on the old s that we had over a two-year time frame before that so, so it was history weird. wise just real quick robotic technology we were on our uh, there was one, there was something before the S. I don't remember what it was. Then there was the S. Then there was the SI. And did you say standard? I think it was standard. And then um, and then now we're on the XI platform. And each technology right. there's been a, there's a huge jump in the abilities of the platform. Um, and so anyway, so the original S. And then I'm assuming you're on XI now, right? We're on XI now. So that was the whole thing. We were on the S at our institution, which was a, a transfer from another institution that that uh, was that got an SI. 
and that uh, the uh, the S came out in 2006 or so, the SI around 2009, and here we were in 2014, and we were getting ready to get an XI and trade in for this S. So that's why he was looking for general surgery because the XI brought in uh, uh, several developments that made general surgery as a specialty more minimal to the robotic. Uh, procedures. And namely what I'm talking about is having that multi-quadrant access. The systems prior to that were locked into pretty much one quadrant, maybe a little bit off to each side, but the XI came in with a boom mount and the arm architecture changed significantly to allow you to get into multiple quadrants from one docking position. That's really kind of what general surgery does. We generally work in broad. With the with the SI um, device, basically you're kind of locked into maybe a 90, maybe 100 degree cone of, of operation. So really you were limited. Heidel hernias still worked very, very well. Um, gallbladder still worked well. Appendixes would have worked well, though I wasn't doing them then. Um, and then sigmoid colons, I got to do, I, I did those pretty effectively. Right colons were a struggle, uh, at least for me. And then left colons, splenic flexure stuff was an absolute struggle and you would have to like redock and really plan your ports. Uh, and nowadays it just, it's made it much simpler to get to those extra quadrants. And now it's pretty much almost 180 degrees. Maybe not quite, maybe like 170. Um, and yeah, you just that multi-quadrant access. I couldn't agree more with that. Um, yeah. See, I would say even, even more than 180 cause you can flip around, you know, and, and you, it's with the boom mount, you don't even have to change anything other than just undock and flip around and use right. the same truck cars direction which you could do on an si as well but it wasn't as easy no totally totally agree with you yeah it's basically 360 it's just a matter of without moving anything 180 flip it around very easy very quickly especially with the pa or good tech no time at all well when we did that 150 cases in the in a first in our first quarter the first thing we realized was that we had a problem we had one robot and at that point we had two teams and they both went home at three o'clock so we were back to that same old problem from the early lap days where we had access issues because of, of support. So having been kind of drawn into this by the CEO and he was from the same era of training as, uh, you know, from uh, as an administrator, he had been through those early lap days as well. So we talked about it. We said, look, you know, we both agree this is where things are going. Um, let's make it happen. Let's just do it now. So uh, we looked into that, what that would require. And basically all it meant was we had to train the staff. We already had the robot. We had an interested surgeon. I had admin support, which is what you sound like you had to spend a couple of years trying to help further develop. Because once those three things are in place, then you can do what's really needed, which is train the staff. Because you have to have trained staff at two o'clock in the morning to be able to do a case. Everything else can be in line. But if your staff isn't trained, you're, you're out. You can't do it. Right. And we got that uh, right away. We decided to train everyone at once, which we did. Uh, it took about four months. And after, at, in early 2015, we flipped the switch and turned it into a 24 seven program. And that's when more and more and more cases started being done, uh, including this whole acute care aspect of it. That's where I started doing uh, the, the, the perf bowels and the, the bowel obstructions, perf ulcers, uh, nasty gallbladders, of course, uh, were, were a no brainer and incarcerated hernias were a no brainer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all those cases started dropping and those traditionally for me were open cases as well. Yeah. So, that open to uh, um, uh, MIS migration it has been most pronounced in the acute care world, as I've seen. And, you know, it, it takes, there are cases where you're like, all right, you know, here's a guy with a perf bowel. He's 35 years old. No matter what you do, the patient's probably going to do pretty well, right? 
But I have a case that uh, is a pretty good case in terms of sharing this because I don't think this guy survives without the robotic technique, right? 72-year-old guy, basically homeless, unfortunately, came, comes in with a perfect ulcer, okay? Okay, perfect ulcer, fine. Well, his ejection fraction for his heart was like uh, 15% the last time he went to his cardiologist three years ago. He's actively on Coumadin. His INR is 15, I think it was. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, he's hypotensive and unstable. So we try and stabilize him a little bit, see if we can't reverse him. Essentially, we can't. He's literally dying from sepsis and, frankly, his lack of reserve based on his overall health condition. So we hang a couple units of FFP and we go to the OR with an INR of 15 or whatever it was. It was really high. And because it was minimally invasive, because literally all I did was bring up a traditional gram patch robotically and sew it in place, I lost, you know, two cc's of blood, got them patched, got them back to the unit. We re- continued to resuscitate them and give them antibiotics and everything that you would normally do. And he made it, you know. And I don't know this guy makes it with an open surgery, you know. And he left the hospital for rehab in six days. And for those general surgeons to practice out of there, that patient doesn't leave the hospital that fast without, uh, with an open procedure, um, unless everything just aligns perfectly right and the moon's aligned with the sun and mercury. But other than that, yeah, that, that, for me, that was just like, wow, this is really, that was maybe about eight months ago, and that, that's really a lot, because that, that really changed it for me. That was like, okay, this is something cool that I like doing, but this is making a difference. And that, that really flipped the switch. The mortality aspect of this is, as you're uh, that you're uh, kind of illustrating, there is a big deal. There, there are patients who, because you are able to accomplish it, MIS, because of robotic capabilities, you may, you change the mortality. But I think just uh, uh, probably even as much of an impact comes from the morbidity side of it. Oh, that yeah. perfect patient who's 35, yeah, he might he he's uh, if he gets an open procedure, he goes home, he does well, but he probably went home with a wound back. And he, and he had uh, probably with that big incision, he might very well develop an incisional hernia as time goes on. Absolutely. Well, when you accomplish those with four or five little incisions, then they don't go home with a w- big wound back. They go home quicker usually, and they don't have that big wound back. And then the, the risk of an incisional hernia drops significantly as a result of that. And even on the chance that they did get a hernia through one of the port sites, you're talking about a small, very easily repairable hernia versus, you know, the hernia that goes from the xiphoid down to the pubis. <laughs> So, yeah, yeah, big, big difference. Yeah, amazing. So as we kind of like go through some of this history and some of these challenges, you know, what's your advice to surgeons that are like two, the two different surgeons as I see it, the surgeon that's thinking robotics might be something they want to do, but they're not sure. And then also for, this, for the surgeon that likes robotics, but wants to take it further. So my advice is simple. Understand what's happening out there in the surgical community. Uh, We've talked about this kind of laparoscopic robotic analogy. Well, in the mid-90s, laparoscopy became a general surgical tool. In the mid-80s, if you said laparoscopy, you were talking about GYN. But with the growth of of lap coles and hernias and everything, by the mid-90s, general surgery had taken over. Well, in the, in the 2017, the last quarter, general surgery actually passed up GYN for the first time ever to do more cases on the robot. And then in 2018, general surgery did more cases on the robot than all of the other specialties combined. Right. So from an analogous standpoint, we are at that point tipping point now where general surgery 
we we are the robotic service we do the vast majority of cases yeah all the specialties are growing but because of how many of us there are and how many types of cases that are that fit on the robot we do the most that's what's driving the culture change around this thing of needing more access and more uh, support from staff all the things that are happening differently because the robot's been around for 15 20 years but because general surgery is now doing everything that we're doing things are changing around the robot so understand and if you're that guy who's not sure you want to do this, you know, maybe you don't. Maybe you're close to retirement and you can finish out. But if you're not close to retirement and you think you're going to practice for a while, this is happening. It is becoming a standard. If I would say at this point it is a standard. And depending on what procedure, it won't be long before it becomes a gold standard. Prostate is a gold standard for the robot. GYN malignancy standard on the robot. And in general surgical realm, there are several procedures that are rapidly growing. And within a few years, you're going to consider the robotic colectomy, robotic ventral hernia repair. Those things, I think, are the front ones that are probably going to reach gold standard status for general surgery before long. So that's my advice to the guy who's reticent to do it. I Just would, realize I would definitely, I agree with all of that. But I also would argue that lap coli, robotic coli rather, we're going to be there too. And this is something that two years ago, so I've done robotics always and whatever, and I kind of, I was accepting of the like, okay, there's a three o'clock time limit, whatever, and I still do a ton of lap and, you know, I'd be selective about when I did it and whatnot. But two years ago, I had a really, really hard gallbladder. I was doing it robotically and I kind of remember thinking, gosh, I wish I hadn't really done that. I, I'm kind of now in this hard gallbladder. And I was like, wait a minute, it's easier. This is actually better. And it was at that time, I, I told my partner, I'm like, I'm not doing another lap coli, period. I'm not doing it. I will fight. I will literally have patients kind of sit for just a little bit rather than give them a, la a less uh, uh, inferior operation. And for me, there's no question it's safer. I can get around the duct. I can dissect it finally rather than kind of doing this tearing technique that we sometimes do with laparoscopic. And you can literally dissect out the vessel almost as finely as you could with, you know, vascular tools uh, and a vascular surgeon. And so being able to have that fine technique, and then we haven't even talked about ICG and other visualization techniques that the XI platform, well, the SI had it too, but, but the XI platform was pretty much integrated and a little easier and, and better. And so doing that, when a patient gets a little bit of dye beforehand, we can visualize the structures of the bile ducts so much easier, and we can avoid a potential devastating injury much easier and, and confirm our exact location much easier. And so it takes something that's already a pretty safe procedure in, in good hands to even safer. And I don't think I've seen the paper, at least not yet, but I think it's coming um, that the robotic will be safer than lap coli. And I think sooner rather than later, I'm hopeful because in my mind, there's not even a question. So sorry, I didn't mean to yes. get in my soapbox, but. <laughs> I, I agree with you. In fact, I, I haven't, the, 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 when you say safer, that's the key word for me. I have seen the paper and I've seen data that supports robotics in, in terms of decreasing conversions. Yep. There's definitely rate of conversions that happens in those papers they're usually not powered such that you can uh, get clinical significance but virtually everything i've seen has shown trending towards safer in the sense of fewer right. common duct, duct uh, injuries so i think both of those things i couldn't agree more with i'm in the same boat i'm not going to do a lap coli unless both of my robots are broken and i can't get on them in the next hour or two 
Uh, that's just not, I'll wait an hour or two as long as patients can wait um, and, and until I can get on the robot. It's worth it to me. I'll give up that time because I know I'm going to have a better tool. You never know what you're going to get when you get inside on, on these acute coles. You never know what anatomy is going to be variant. And I can just sort it out a lot faster and a lot safer. And there's no sense of, in my mind of doing the laparoscopic approach when you have that capability to do something uh, which is, again, more, a lot more safe uh, in my hands. Yeah, no, and that's coming from uh, a couple of surgeons that, I mean, before I did robotics, I don't know even the number, but I mean, several thousand lap coles easily. And um, yeah, so that's, that, that says a lot. <laughs> All right. Um, and then, so then for the surgeon that is trying to push forward, how do they push forward? Like, how do they get that extra skill? For me, and I don't know if this applies to you or not, there is something about, and I think you, you proctor for the robotic platform, don't you? You go out and do that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I, I did that for a while. Frankly, it, it's a little bit, it's kind of tough schedule wise. Cause unfortunately it comes up at the last second and like, Hey, can you be in West Virginia on Friday? And I'm like, no. Um, but I, I really enjoyed doing that. And I got to meet some people around the country, but um, it's interesting because there's some people that can sit down and just get it. And then there's some people that, that need to learn a little bit more. They need, they need a little bit more practice. And for me, and it's a weird thing, it's did they play video games? Do they play video games? And I'm not here to, I'm not going to talk too much positive or negative about video games, but, you know, I always have, and I still do. My relaxing thing is I'll sit down and I'll play a game or do something. Um, and there's something to that hand-eye coordination of screen to mouse to and translating, and it's almost more with the robot than it was with laparoscopic. Have you experienced that or am I just weird? I might differ uh, with you a bit on that. I think the, the whole thing of video games did come up in, in the early lap days. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, you worked as an open surgeon prior to laparoscopy. You were looking at your hands in the field. All of a sudden now with laparoscopy, you were holding instruments and you had your head turned off to the side looking at a 2D screen. Mm -hmm. So I think video games really did help in that setting because that's how you play video games. You are working your thumbs and hands down low and you're looking at a 2D screen, which is not looking at your hands. So now with robotics, so I think the open surgeons uh, who are moving into this have had an easier time of it. And that's generally what I see in terms of, of uh, some of the studies that it's more, and I hate to use a word, but it's more intuitive for that transition because they are, in a sense, looking at their hands. Their hands are in front of them. They're in the console with the uh, eyes into the viewfinders, and they're looking at the two instruments straight in line, right. and they can almost envision those as their hands. So it's very similar to open from the paradigm that you're working. So I think that helps. I think the key for me, for, for that person who's trying to gain skills, is to realize that as surgeons, we have never had anything different that we've learned in a pathway other than starting simple, driving basic skills, and getting better and expanding our horizons along the way. Robotics is no different. You have to work a little bit ahead of time before you sit down at the console to do that patient. You have to do basic cases, or if you're starting with basic cases, you have to do the simulator exercises. You've got to learn the platform, get the, the, the uh, tool itself mastered before you sit down on the first patient. If you can't remember which button to push or which pedal, it's not time to be sitting at a patient. No, and unfortunately, some try that. I've, I, my proctoring uh, experiences is scary sometimes when the first thing they do when they sit down is they look in there and they go, okay, well, where am I supposed to put my hands here? I know it's going to be a long day proctoring in that setting because it's, it's, they don't even know where to start. 
so yes. put in the time on the simulator. If you're already doing cases, put in the time on the basic cases. Get comfortable sewing on, on hernias. Get comfortable with uh, gallbladders doing camera movements and, and uh, fourth arm control. You can ha use all forearms and get that skill set down so that when you do the colon, you already know how to sew. You already know how to use the fourth arm. You've already mastered the tool and you can work through and get uh, more experience and, and do harder cases in a, in a progressive fashion, just like we did on everything we ever learned in residency. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I think taking something, when you are doing something more simple, when you're doing a gallbladder, particularly a simple gallbladder. So if you're doing a simple gallbladder and you think it's going to take you like 20 minutes, take a little tiny bit of extra time, take a stitch, put a stitch in the gallbladder, sew it. Take a little tiny extra time and tie the proximal end of the cystic duct that's not, you know, not staying in situ. And, you know, just take a little bit of time to get those little bit of extra skills. Um, do your liver biopsies robotically. Um, learn how to cauterize with scissors. Um, you know, whatever you can do. And a lot of things are, you know, somewhat with the reps that are extremely helpful. I think uh, Intuitive and DaVinci, they, they do a great job with most of their reps in terms of, Kind of what are some other people doing? Like, what can I maybe be doing better? And, you know, I wouldn't expect them to practice medicine, but they can definitely give you some pointers as to, you know, what other people are able to do. And then just even having some ideas, you know, we do get stuck sometimes. And, you know, I consider myself, you know, an expert robotic surgeon. I've done it a long time and I've done a lot of cases, but for whatever reason, I hadn't thought of the end of the loop with the appendix. Gonna try it. Um, so, yeah, um, the more we do stuff like this, and part of what I wanted to do when I started this podcast is to get innovative people on the, on the show, talk to them, frankly, to sponge information, you know, make myself better. So I'll take that as a, a personal win, but hopefully to get this information out to other folks as well. And I think when we, when we can talk and have frank conversations about, you know, challenges and successes and, you know, things that, that helped us along the way. And that is great advice. You know, yeah, you might be doing a gallbladder here and there robotically, and you may be thinking, well, I really want to save that for the kind of easy ones, the hard ones I'm still going to do laparoscopically. Start right now. Flip that switch. Hard ones are better and easier robotically. So flip that switch. That's great early advice, I think. And then, yeah, start pushing yourself slowly. Um, and then, you know, start pushing staff and, you know, push yourself a little bit. And I think what the role of going to courses, going to observe other surgeons uh, what do you think about that? How useful is that for you or for other surgeons, you think? I think it's a very useful tool to to uh, 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 at, go to courses at set intervals, if you will. And we offer that uh, at, and, uh, through HCA. With our, we, we kind of promote growth on the surgeons by when they hit certain numbers, key, key numbers, we'll, we'll offer courses to them. Uh, so if you get to a point where you've done 10, 25, 50 cases, go do the next uh, pr course procedure, whether it's a hernia luminary or maybe it's a, a TR300, as they call it, for the, the hernia and colon, where you get more advanced techniques. And uh, even surgeons who've done 250 or 500, there's some, probably an advanced uh, skill out there that they may want to learn. Maybe they don't. Maybe that's not their thing. But right. uh, I think do help but i think even before you go do courses one of the things that you can do locally to, uh, that uh is more than what we've been talking about is the use of video uh whether you sit and watch videos on youtube you know some of them are great you'll pick up some things from different you, you get uh, used to especially when you're first starting you get used to the the paradigm of the view right. it's different than 
microscopy and you can get used to the view by simply watching videos over and over. You'll start to recognize that that different depth that you're working at. Uh, even though it's in 2D, when the 3D comes, it's going to be easier. And the other video aspect is if you have the ability, record yourself. Watch your own videos like game film, especially in your first five or 10 when you're doing a procedure. Uh, go home and just fly through it on your computer, but watch yourself doing critical portions of the operation and see how your hands are moving. See how you're helping yourself from exposure standpoint for forearm technique. All those things, when you watch in third person, you get more out of it. That's why that, that technique of game film or watching your golf swing, that's why they use that because it's a good learning tool and you don't have to, you know, file any hip or anything if you just record your videos and uh, scrub them and then, and then go watch them on a PC somewhere to improve your own skills. I think that's another helpful tool. Oh, couldn't agree more. I, you know, I started recording myself a year, year and a half ago. I don't say I, I wouldn't record every last thing. I don't record every gallbladder anymore. Um, but at the same time, yeah, bigger procedures, uh, you know, the last bowel obstruction I did, uh, you know, we recorded. And so and it's interesting because originally when I started recording, I didn't record them for that purpose. I recorded them with the idea that then I'd get the permission of the patient, then I could put it up on our YouTube page or whatever and just have that available for either other surgeons. And a lot of patients want to see this. And I'm really amazed at how many patients want to see their own surgery on YouTube once you kind of talk to them. But anyway, uh, yeah, and it's been funny because I go back and I'm looking at it and maybe I'm editing it to try and get it down so I can put it on YouTube. And as I'm watching the critical portions, I'm like, could have done that better. Look at that right there. Boom. Just like, you know, whether it's, you know, Tom Brady or Peyton Manning going through every single, uh, <laughs> I'm a football nerd, so I apologize. But those guys, they watch an interception film at the end of every season. They sit down and they watch every single interception right? Or every single drop pass. Um, and they also watch every touchdown pass and they analyze what caused this interception. You know, sometimes it's a tip ball, not their fault. Kind of the same thing with us. You know, what happened here? There was a, there was a small perforation. What happened? Oh, the fourth arm was in the way. I didn't see that live or whatever. And yeah, there's tremendous opportunity for that. And I totally agree. And it's an accident that I found that I didn't even think of that as a learning tool. I was using it more as a marketing tool, but it became a learning tool. So yeah. huh, that's amazing, amazing advice. Um, yeah. And particularly if something didn't go as well as you would have thought, definitely a great time to go back and look there. Like, what, what, what were you struggling with? What was the problem? Why did you struggle? And, you know, we learned a lot when we do colons, uh, particularly with sigmoid colons, there's, a, there's an anvil that has to be inserted through the abdomen and then gets placed into the colon to make your anastomosis. And that's honestly sometimes the most challenging part of the case is getting that anvil into the abdomen because your incisions are only like 12 millimeters and those anvils are literally 29 millimeters usually. And so, in diameter. So when you're doing that, uh, you kind of have to sneak it in, you have to whatever, and watching that tape, it's like, boom, that's when it came in. What were you doing when it came in? And it's not really even totally a robotic technique, but it's a, a, an auxiliary to it. And so... Yeah, we kind of learned how to get that thing in a little bit smoother just by watching tape. So, great advice. You know, for those uh, for those colons, uh, I use a, a, um, a uh, extraction site at a superpubic site. Mm -hmm. I use like a three centimeter incision, and when I'm doing a colectomy these days, that's where I actually start. I make my three centimeter incision, and I drop in the Alexis system yep. uh, with it. it has a little fluorescent cap, and then I put in that trocar that goes there and insufflate up. So dropping a trocar in in that hole is easy, and that, and because I'm going to make mean, that hole. You mean anvil, not trocar. Dropping, 
sorry, dropping the anvil in, you're right, dropping the anvil into that, uh, through that uh, opening is, is a simple thing to do because I'm going to make uh, an extraction site at some point. So by making a three centimeter extraction site from the front, I go in Hassan technique and then anything I need to pass in and out, it's, it's easy to get it in and out of that um, Alexis system. Yep. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, well, I'd have to measure mine because we literally, we end up making it just big enough and I, I might be beating your three centimeters. Um, and yeah. I, I, I do that, um, like I say, with the, most of the sigmoids that are coming out are, are diverticular disease or there's a tumor. And, you know, so pulling yeah. them through uh, three centimeters is a pretty small, inch and a quarter, inch and a half. And yeah. uh, if I don't usually take anything out bow wise that that uh, would come out any anything smaller than that, if I've got enough mesentery sure. and all with it. We even sometimes have to push it from there. I, I know for I, sometimes I have to make that three into a four or a five uh, because the of the thickness and of the bowel itself, just trying to get it out. Have you taken them out transanally yet? You know, I've seen that technique. It's cool. I think it's neat. But um, one of the things about innovation, of course, is does it catch on? And there's been there's been several things, even in robotics, that have come along that everybody thought, well, that's neat, but. Nah, I don't think so. It just for me, this is about using the standard things that we learned during residency, those standard principles, those standard techniques. And I never took them out transanally, laparoscopically. Just didn't do it. And even at this point, I, I'm not a big fan of that. I mean, yeah, it's cool if you can do it and you want to do it. By all means, do so. Uh, but I make a three centimeter fan of steel, which is easy to it's, uh, close up. It's a, a pretty painless pers- uh, location, right. and a lot of these your patients that you're you know, that you're working with sometimes it's 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 easy to get there it's challenging sure. to do the anus there's there are problems that go with putting it uh, trying to take the specimen out through the anus as oh, well for sure. yeah no I, I haven't tried it yet either i've been uh been flirting with the idea though so i don't know we'll see <laughs> i'll let you know uh okay. cool cool all right so yeah i think we've gone over some cool stuff i think i'm, I'm hopeful that uh i'm hopeful that we inspire people because I've got some people in, in sort of my community that um, that I respect highly and, and are good surgeons and take great care of patients. And, you know, I often wonder, like, you know, why aren't they doing robotics? And uh, what is, what's the challenge for them? And I think some of the challenges, some of the stuff we've talked about, some dogma, right? Some just, that's not how they were brought up. Some, you know, struggle with, you know, facility. And it's just, it's just too much of an ordeal to kind of fight City Hall, if you will. And if you can't do it the same way every single time, why do it some one way before three o'clock and another way after three o'clock? And I, and I get those challenges, um, but they still don't, they don't make the leap. And I'm, I'm hopeful that hearing some of this and hearing how you kind of approach some of the stuff and knowing that, you know, as we move forward, and I think as we get more and more data with safety of improved patient outcomes, and, you know, it's just like we did with laparoscopic. And I, your analogy is, it's really elegant to me because it really is the thing. It's the exact same thing. And I'm, I'm just young enough where I grew up with laparoscopic, so I didn't have to make those fights. Um, you know, having trained from 99 to 2004, we were already basically 10 years into the laparoscopic experience. And literally my intern year was the year that they started letting interns come back to appendectomies and we could do laparoscopic appendectomies. Because the years before that, they would only let third years do appendectomies laparoscopically. And so they, it had gotten to that point where we really, everyone was pretty facile with it, even, even some of the older guys. So... So even some of the older guys. So, you know, that's just one of those things that uh, with the parallels between the two programs, as we get better with it and as we sort of make some of these uh, 
improvements and, and get more people trained and it becomes more and more mainstream. We get the studies that show all this. I, I think it's going to be, everyone's going to do that. But even, you know, in residency, the residency programs are not necessarily pushing this as hard as I would think they would be. You know, I, I don't know what your experience, do you work with residency programs at all? But I don't work with, I work with a lot of residency directors in, in various ways. And I can tell you there's plenty of them out there who are making robotics a mainstay. It would already be, in my opinion, required in residency. It's already required for colorectal fellowship. Yes. Uh, urology. 98 or 99 percent of urologists are trained on the robot before they get out general surgery the the in my opinion the one reason it is not already a mandate is because it would be difficult to require all these facilities to train robotically if they don't have a robot or have access for all the residents that they have so they've got to get the access issue solved sure. uh simultaneously or first and then before long it'll be a mandate residents coming out tell me and i've had i've uh, had several guys come through recently uh, residents tell me it's one of the main questions one of the most common questions they get is are you trained robotically this is coming from other doctors and from administrators idea being that if you're not that means okay i'm going to have to train you if you're coming to my robotic practice or if you're coming to my hospital we know you're going to be doing it eventually and we'll be the ones who have to train you right. so it's a real plus for a resident who comes out with training uh they already have that check uh, uh, that box checked and they don't have to go through the training again for the most part so yeah. i think it's a mandate soon to come but access has to be resolved first yeah and i think i think we're at the stage of training not like probably like we were more like in 92 or 93, where, yeah, they're getting the training, but it's a chief-level case. It's a fourth-year level case before you can even really touch the robot. And I think that's the problem. So, yes, they're robotic trained, but they're coming out with 40 cases, 30 cases. And so they still have some a ways to go. At least locally, that's kind of been sort of my experience as we, we've interviewed some people here recently in, uh, in the last year or two and sort of just you know wanted to if we could push those programs to do a little bit more. And I, my experience, and this is kind of via some reps and secondhand, so I really don't, I don't have the experience, but there's still some reticence. There's still a bit of that dogma that they're fighting as well, the academic guys. And, you know, the academic guys, they're not clinical practitioners. They have a little different mindset than you and I might have of they want to see it in paper first or they want to be the ones studying it before they're going to be an adopter. And that's not wrong, but it's slower. And it, 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 and when we get those guys on board, I think we'll really see it just go crazy. So cool. Uh, well, anything else, man? Uh, this has been great. No, I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you, and um, I think we've covered a lot of stuff. And I, I couldn't agree more that uh, you know this is is just the same way we we adopted uh, laparoscopy. We're adopting robotics. We're overcoming dogma, and uh, we're uh, recognizing and and uh, gradually bringing this platform to the forefront. And general surgery is the driving force for it in, in a lot of ways right now. And I think you're going to see nothing but uh, on a computer-based platform. Uh, adding on things, doing upgrades, if you will, is going to continue to drive the improvement in outcomes. And I'm looking forward to a lot of that data we were talking about because I, I, I truly believe it's going to be there just a matter of time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Cool. All right. Well, thank you again, Dr. Harkin. I appreciate you being here for, for this and uh, kind of in the early part of the show and taking time out of your day. I know it's valuable and I appreciate that very much. And uh, yeah, hopefully we can do this again. We can talk about some other things too because I've enjoyed this quite a bit. That's great. Thank you. All right. My pleasure. All right. So this has been Dr. Chris, the surgery guy. We are 
done for this week, but we'll be back next week where we talk to someone new and something that interests me. So we'll see you next week. Thanks a lot. Once again, shout out to Andrew at Approaching Nirvana. Thank you for the rights to use the music for the intro and outro and some of the background music you heard during the show. Thanks again.